Hi, Chris here. Before we start this episode of the Double K Super Show, I'd like to make a couple of corrections to some previous episodes. On our Albums of 1980 episode, I referred to Mark Nossif as one of the early bass players who worked on Black Sabbath 7 and Hellsong. That's not true. Mark Nossif was a drummer, not a bass player. And on this episode, I refer to the song, our song, as a ballad. This Yes song is not a ballad. And on our Bay City Rollers episode, I referred to guitarist Eric Faulkner as Eric Longmuir. I tried to edit out some of the Longmuirs, but wasn't always successful. Despite the fact that we know all this stuff, we make mistakes, we're not perfect. And neither is our show. But we do strive to entertain. And therefore, let's listen to a couple of Yes Men go on about the band Yes on the Double K Super Show. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Starship Trooper. I'm Mark Hanzerowski. Yours is no disgrace. <laughs> We're going to talk about two albums by the band Yes. One of the innovators of progressive rock who started out in the late 60s. The first album was released 50 years ago this month. We're talking about the Yes album. And the Yes album was a, a quintessential album for them because it ushered in a new era for the band. While the band had had two previous albums, 1969's eponymously titled album and 1970's Time and a Word, this was the first Yes album for me where Yes's sound really began. It's the first album where they get Steve Howland in a band. It's the first album where they have five musicians who are all on the same page, um, all at each other's skill level. And it's the first album where they really do come up with a coherent sound and also a coherent set of songs. They also brought on Eddie Offord as their co-producer. Eddie Offord had worked uh, as an engineer on the previous album, Time and a Word, but this time Yes took the reins and they brought him on to help out so they could realize the sound that they'd wanted to. What it comes down to is that the songs became more expansive at the same time that they also became more filled with hooks. There's no covers on this album as there were too many of on the previous two. The songs are all original. The songs are, many of them are multi-part, but each of them features a hook. There's a definite melody line that goes through all of them. Uh, The level of improvisation is higher. It's just a more cohesive, more immediately striking set of songs. Let's review the lineup so people know who's in the band. John Anderson on lead vocals. The late, great Chris Squire on bass guitar and vocals. Steve Howe, electric and acoustic guitars. Vakalia vocals, Tony K, piano, Hammond organ, Moog synthesizer, and Bill Bruford on drums. I should say Dr. Bill Bruford now because he's a doctor. Well, Bill Bruford retired in 2009, and I guess he went back to school, and he's written papers on music and musicality, and he's a, he's a very intelligent guy, very dry-witted. But anyway, let's let's get to the music. As you were saying, Mark, they definitely have hooks, and when I first heard this album, I was... I couldn't believe how good it was. It it combines all these classic elements of rock, classical styled rock. You know, there's there's a little bit of country chicken picking. There's <coughs> lots of stuff. And, you know, like I said, 
this is where, for me, Yes is Sound really begins, where things begin to take shape. And for that reason alone, it's my it's my second favorite Yes album. It is the album where they combine all the elements that could potentially enter the Yes sound. They put them all together. As you say, there's a lot of there's a lot of classical motifs. There are elements of jazz, little bits of country, um, the occasional TV western theme. I mean, there's a lot of elements that go into making up the sort of melting pot. And to some degree, it, it does represent them at, at the absolute height of their inspiration and creativity. Well, this album definitely would lead to bigger and better things. It would be Steve Howe's first, and it would be Tony Kaye's last. But why don't we do a quick run-through of the tracks, and we can sort of offer our thoughts on those. Okay. Yours is no disgrace. Well, we start off, of course, with a TV Western theme show. Theme song, rather. And it's an epic sort of intro. It really builds. It goes into the first appearance of a Moog Synthesizer on an album, which is officially credited to Tony Kay. But if you listen to John Anderson in, in interviews, he claims to be the one actually playing the Moog Synthesizer. And the reason for that is because Tony Kay had no interest in becoming a synthesizer player, which is probably one of the reasons why this album is indeed his last with the group. Uh, but Yours is No Disgrace is, is multi-part. It ranges through a number of tempos, a number of moods. Fantastic Steve Howe guitar solo. And it's also one of the first places where you clearly hear, where you clearly hear Chris Squire's bass lines. Yeah, they definitely brought the bass really up in the mix. You realize, too, that Chris Squire was not a bass player who was just plunking along in the background playing rhythm. He was playing you know, like a guitar player. And that's that was one of the things that made Yes so unique. You, In a sense, you almost had like two guitar players, Steve Howe and and Chris Squire. You know, of course, John Anderson would sometimes strum an acoustic guitar. But the one thing about this song, this version of the song, I should say, that no other version has, whether it be played by Bill Bruford or Alan White, this uh, this song, this version of the song has a bounce to it. It's just got a really tightness to it. Whereas live versions I've heard with Bill Bruford and Alan White, they, they kind of plot a little, if you know what I mean. Well, they also uh, tend to increase the tempo in concert, whereas the tempo that you hear on this on this recording, the studio recording, I think it's just at the right tempo. It's fast without being too fast. They're, they're not rushing through it. And not only that, you've also got the jazz influence because Steve Howe is definitely playing some, I want to say, Wes Montgomery-type lick. And, of course, Bill Bruford was a total jazz head. And that's what one of the things that made this group unique is that you had you know, a jazz guitar. I mean, Steve Howe could play jazz, country. Bill Bruford's a jazz drummer. You know, John Anderson was influenced by you know Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles and uh, the Beach Boys and... Chris Squire came out of a church choir and kind of invented his own style, really. The other thing we should talk about is Bill Bruford's drum sound on this song. He basically plays the entire thing doing rim shots, and that apparently was his only way of cutting through the mix to where you could hear his snare, because Chris Squire was taking up so much of the lower frequencies himself. Well, you know, if Bill Bruford hadn't made it in music, he could have backed up comedians. Absolutely. 
And Bill Bruford, like I said, he's a funny guy himself. But I love this song. Any anytime I do a Yes playlist, this is you. This is generally the first song. There's just something about it I love. And you've got Tony K, who I've always described Tony K as being a background player, and maybe that's not the right term, but he's more of a textural keyboardist, at least on like on this album. He's not as flashy as Rick Wakeman or some of the other, you know, Jeff Downs or some of the other keyboardists who would come along later. He's really good. I think sometimes people forget about him because they, they focus more on Rick Wakeman because he's a flashier player. I think uh, the fact that Tony Kay does take sort of a backseat in this album, I think it's what keeps the album from going too far overboard into the realm of excess. Yeah, that would come later. <laughs> but you, have, you make some good points. Do you have anything more to say about yours as no disgrace? So, uh, no, I think we pretty much covered it. Uh, we move on to a, a track recorded live at the Lyceum, uh, Steve Howe's solo acoustic guitar feature. Uh, depending on what label you read, the single or the album label, it's either called Clap or The Clap. Well, when I first saw it, it was always called The Clap, and that has an unfortunate connotation with venereal disease, as such as it was back then. Steve, you know, and the funny thing about it is that a studio version was recorded for this, but they ended up using a live version. And, of course, John Anderson introduces it by saying, this is a song called The Clap. So poor Steve Howe had to live with that for years that, you know, he titled an instrumental after a venereal disease. Yeah, it's one of those unfortunate things. But then again, the group was called Yes. So <laughs> The other thing, too, is that the original studio version of Clap has parts that would later surface on the Fragile album as uh, Mood for a Day. So in a way, it's kind of interesting that they just went with the live version and Steve Howe probably was, hey, wait a minute, I can recycle this for the next album. Well, what the clap is, it's 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 short. It's what two minutes, three minutes. It's his solo guitar feature. He plays a nice little folky kind of, somewhere between folk and country kind of nice little melody. It's probably good that they went with the shorter version, because it, as good as it is, clap is basically just a sort of interlude between two much larger pieces. But one hell of an interlude it was. It's a very nice one. The clap then fades out, and we get what was at the time the ultimate Yes Magnum Opus, Starship Trooper. Yep, and like a lot of Yes epics that to come, it would be broken up into sections. Life Seeker. Lifesaver. <laughs> I may keep this in the episode. Life Seeker. Disillusion and Worm. And I can identify Worm because that's the part at the end with the flange guitar where it just goes and goes on for the next few minutes like that. A wonderful song, a great song, a great song. One of Yes's key tracks. It is the ultimate, um, I guess you could say, the ultimate expression of Yes's melting pot as existed at that time because it's, it's basically three different songs melded together incredibly well. There's the opening part that is very King Crimson-like. There's the middle part that is kind of like Crosby, Stills, and Nash-like. And then the end part that's basically a riff, but it's it's flanged out, as you said. And it's 
it, it's almost like an instrumental Hey Jude repetition kind of thing because it is the same riff going over, but it's building it's building in steam intensity the entire time. Right, and you mentioned King Crimson. When Yes was starting out, they went to go see King Crimson, or they were playing on a bill with them or something. And when John Anderson looked at them, he said, "Wow, we've got a lot of work to do." Yeah, King Crimson basically set the precedent. Uh, they set the bar for every prog rock group to follow. Uh, you can hear it. Um, not to go off in too far of a sidetrack, but the first, the distance from the first Yes album to the third Yes album is quite a ways, and I think the for Yes, much like Genesis. The, the intervening factor is the emergence of King Crimson. Right. But I would say I prefer Yes to King Crimson. I find Yes to be more accessible. As esoteric as they are and as crazy as they can be at times, King Crimson is a lot crazier. Well, King Crimson is a lot like, is a lot less, um, how do you say, audience-friendly. Half, half of their music is instrumental. They don't really rely on pop hooks. Yes, even when they they stretch out way beyond the bounds of common sense, they do still retain their personality, and there are pop hooks at the at the core of of what they're presenting. Right, you know, like I said before, the yes combined all sorts of elements, you know, harmonies, you know, like Beach Boy harmonies, Simon and Garfunkel harmonies, and Bill Bruford later said that towards the end of his term with the group, he said that drove him nuts. That's And ironically, or not ironically, and of course, where did Bill Bruford go after he left Yes in 1972? He went straight to Crimson. But they were definitely in the moment on this album. And like I said, Starship Trooper, wonderful song. The original studio version is probably the best, although there are some great live versions out there. But let's jump ahead to side two and a song that... While I love it, it's a Yes song that I'm I'm kind of sick of in a way. Uh, I've seen all good people. It's their it's their first breakthrough radio hit. It was played to death on every FM radio station in the country, and to a large degree still is. It's one of Yes's all time top three or four radio hits. It's not a bad song. It's as you say, we've gotten a little bit over familiar with it, but taken on its own terms, it's a it's a folky, it's a very vocal folk melody. It's a little bit nursery rhymeish. The lyrics are a little bit not sure what he's talking about. Well, and of course, the, the transition in the middle is it goes straight to you know a jazz riff again. Well, as far as I I read, the lyrics are a metaphor for chess. Don't surround yourself with yourself. Move on back to square. And then he references uh, Instant Karma by John Lennon. And if you listen closely in the backing vocals, he, they do sing, give peace a chance. So they, you know, Yes is referencing chess, John Lennon, and all sorts of good stuff. We should probably talk about John Anderson's lyrical style, but we can get to that in a moment. Um, it transitions suddenly into... A seemingly unrelated uh, jazz sort of riff, which in which they recycle the line "I've seen all good people." The uh, the combination is interesting, and it's catchy. 
both parts of the song are very catchy. If you ever had any Yes singles, of which they released barely a handful, side A is the Your Move part. Side B is is the All Good People part. Yeah, some of their single edits are very interesting. You know, how do you take a song that's, you know, seven minutes long and distill it into a three-minute song? Or, in the case of a song like Close to the Edge, how do you take, a you know, an 18-minute, 19-minute song and break that up into sections? You know, that's that's the funny thing about Yes. Single edits are almost comedic with that group. I mean, obviously, the record label wanted to try and get them on the charts and have some singles success. Yes is a band that kind of went against that. In fact, they even said, you know, we don't record singles. We record albums, you know, or we record songs, I should say. Yes, yes, do exemplify the 1970s album-focused era. I mean, that some of their albums have only three or four songs on them. They're definitely not focused towards single success. However, um, I've seen All Good People did register on the charts. In fact, that is the song that gave them their first level of radio exposure in America. And that was a good thing for them because at this point, Atlantic Records was going to dump them if this album didn't do well or didn't show some kind of progress because the first two albums were kind of fair to middling in terms of their chart success or their impact on radio. And, and this was the first album to where Yes came to America. That's true. This was their first tour. They they had toured Europe with a group called Iron Butterfly, from whom they actually <clears throat> purchased their, their sound system to come back to America with. And armed with this album, the success that they were having, the exposure that they had on radio with All Good People, this definitely is the album that broke them. Yes, and like I said, this was an album that would lead to bigger and better things. What I saw in this documentary about Yes was that in order to buy that sound system, they had to sell their publishing to their management. Which is probably a decision that came back to haunt them uh, quite shortly afterwards. But who knows at the time, you know. Well, you know, how many bands back then made deals that were that went against their interests? You know, at the time they probably thought it was a good idea, but... This is one of those things. Uh, moving on from there, of course, we go into a short, tiny little piece that doesn't really register much on, on my personal consciousness. I'm not sure about you, Chris, but we're talking about a venture. It's not a very a significant <clears throat> track. Yeah, it's the little interlude between two epics. And epics are something that this band knows, and this is something that they do very, very well. But I like it. It's 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 a nice little song. It's got some nice piano by Tony K. On later versions of this album, like remastered albums and deluxe versions, it doesn't necessarily make the song better, but it it showcases their musical virtuosity. I always had the feeling that it was a longer song. That it was probably like a probably an epic in the making that probably failed at some point or they ran out of time because it does fade out rather oddly. And, and very unexpectedly. It's just um, at the point of getting to a Steve Howe guitar solo when it suddenly begins to fade. Yeah, and I, and I, and I have to wonder like how Steve Howe felt about that. Well, if you're, if you're going to end, you know, I guess leave him wanting more, which we do get more of because the next track sees a time of perpetual change. And this song could be Yes's theme song. This could be their... 
this could be their signature song in a way because from this, you know, from the very beginning, yes, has always been about change, changes in personnel, changes in music, changes in changes in latitude, changes in attitudes. Okay, I'm talking about Jimmy Buffett now. No, this song. In fact, it's this song is the title of of one of the many Yes books that have come out over the years. I think this is a great song. It's a song that starts out, you know, with kind of like the Yes formula, the folky melody, the little sing along, the music gradually like intensifying in the background. It does have one of the most schizophrenic, uh, I won't say interludes, sort of spasms in the middle, you might say. You mean a little part where Tony Kay and uh, Bill Bruford are kind of going at it? Well, you know, that part in the middle where it suddenly, like, changes to, like, whatever time signature that is, like, 211 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, 211. Oh, actually, wouldn't it be 211? 211. We should trademark that and send it to Yes and see what they say. Mm-hmm. That definitely has to be the most, like, a WTF moment on the entire album. I don't know about that, but... You have a good point. And interestingly enough, while I, I do like this version, my favorite, my all-time favorite version of the song is the one that appears on the uh, 1973 Triple Live album, Yes Songs. And, of course, that version was recorded on the Fragile Tour. And it's got Bill Bruford, it's got Rick Wakeman instead of Tony Kay. But, of course, that version has, you know, uh, is, is, is a bit longer and has a drum solo by Bruford. So that could be part of the reason why I like it. That was one of Bill Bruford's like signature moments. The fact that they could suddenly so quickly move into that bizarre time signature and maintain it coherently for a number of minutes and then segue seamlessly back into the the main body of the song. Yes, and part of that obviously has to do not only with the virtuosity of the musicians themselves, but the very skillful editing of Eddie Offord, who was their co-producer and engineer, because you have to you know, remember that a lot of these songs were pieced together on tape from different bits that the members were working on. And when you think about it, this was rec- this was done during the days of analog tape. So it, this wasn't like you can just, you know, cut and paste. You actually had to physically cut tape. Eddie Offord was a, was a key component of yes, a sound and he even went on tour with them and did their live sound. Yeah, you, it, it is one of the moments where you can definitely tell that it, and it's been made. But the proof is in the pudding because they were always able to play the edits live. Yes, and in fact, in a lot of cases, the first time they ever played these songs from start to finish was when they were doing rehearsals for the tours, especially for something like Close to the Edge, which was a couple albums later. Uh, overall... This is this is the album, as I said, that put Yes on the map. This album is the reason that we're still talking about Yes 50 years later. It's worn very, very well over the years. It still sounds great. It's definitely the beginning of what I call my holy trilogy of Yes, or holy trinity. Uh, yes album, Fragile and Close to the Edge. And I think most of the great bands from that era have that. You have that trilogy where the band finds its sound and propels it and moves it forward yeah this is the start of of their golden era uh you could call it their core trio of albums they're in the zone 
they're expanded to the point to where they become incredibly individual. You don't mistake them for any other group. At the same time, they're in the zone expressing themselves to the fullest without being overindulgent, without stretching the concept too far. Yes, that would come later on. And of course, this would end up being Tony Kaye's last album with the band. And not his final album with the band, but his, at the time, it was his final album for quite a long time. As we discussed before, Tony Kay did not want to play synthesizers or any of the more modern keyboards. He wanted to play his Hammond organ and play piano. And I think it was John Anderson and Chris Squire who felt that they wanted to move forward. So they ended up, you know, giving him the boot. I also, too, I also know that I think Steve Howe and him didn't get along for reasons that may have been other than musical. Uh, that may have had to do with the fact that they were sharing rooms and Tony Kay, let's just say he liked the ladies and Steve Howe wanted to get a good night's sleep. Yeah. You know, there, there's always personality differences in addition to philosophical and musical differences. And when you're in a rock and roll band, there was definitely a case of, you know, groupie tolerance versus intolerance. That's, that's always a dividing factor. Groupie tolerance and intolerances and the 211 time signature. Boy, we're just we're coming up with some great stuff tonight, hey eh, Mark? Or oh, you're actually you're actually you're coming up with the great stuff. I'm just kind of bouncing off of that. I'm here to please. So summing up what summing up the Yes album. I guess we have we, we have summed it up. Summing up that yes era. It opens the door on that classic seventies progressive yes era and despite all the excess that follows and there's quite a bit of it this is one album that still stands up and and it's interesting it's always the albums that either mark the beginning of something or mark the peak era of something that last whereas certain other albums by yes such as um, the infamous topographic oceans not so well remembered by the mainstream. Well, I'll tell you something. Topographic Oceans is an album that's really divided between Yes uh, Yes fans. Some fans think it's one of the greatest things they ever did, and some fans don't. I, I mean, I worked with a guy one time many years ago who was a keyboard player, and he swore by it. He thinks it's he thought I don't know if he thought it was their best album, but he loved it. It represents their absolute peak of excess in a lot of ways. It's the concept being stretched entirely too thin, or some people would agree, this is exactly where we want to be, but it, it does move them slightly out of the mainstream. Well, I'll say this about it. My opinion of Topographic Oceans tends to echo Rick Wakeman's. There was too much material for a single album and not enough for a double. And while it's not one of my favorite albums, I respect them for doing it, for at least trying it, if that makes any sense. Well, you have to you have to see how far the limits stretch. I'm not sure if they should have released that record. It might have been interesting as a set of like you know studio bonus tracks. But then again, you know the the record company there's a deadline, and if John Anderson is the only one who has four ideas for a song, you're pretty much stuck attending his prom date. Well, to, plus, too, you have to remember at the time they released that, Yes was very popular. 
and the record, you know, they wanted to get the album out by the end of that year. I think it was 1973. It it, it was a hit. It, it definitely sold. Again, is it too much or is it not enough? Probably a little of both. But anyway, let's jump ahead to our second album. The second album that was a game changer for Yes, although we got sidetracked into Topographic Oceans. Yeah, I um, was trying I was, I was trying to I was trying to sum up the intervening era, uh, you know, the ten years that elapsed between these two records. Well, then you know, then you've got um, you've got Relayer going for the one, Tramato, and then you know you've got Drama. Yeah, and all the drama behind it. We're going to jump ahead to the second album that we plan to talk about. And, of course, I'm referring to 1983's 90125. Is it a zip code? No, it's actually the catalog number of the album from Atlantic Records. Actually, it's ATCO. It's ATCO is a subsidiary of Atlantic, so that's what they named it. But let's let's just backtrack a little bit on this one to see what led up to this. As I understand it, um, somebody who wasn't very fond of Chris Squire left a message on the bathroom wall for a good time, call Chris at 90125. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. You know, back in the early 90s when uh, there was this whole war between Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe, and Yes, the California version of Yes, I made a joke that they could have a new TV show called Beverly Hills 90125. Mm-hmm. And in the first episode, the plot line would be John Anderson can't decide which version of Yes he wants to be in. Yeah, there's so many choices. <laughs> But actually, for this one, although this album came out in 1903, let's backtrack a couple of years to sort of set the stage for this. And we're in 1981. By this point, Yes had broken up or was in limbo, depending on who's, who tells the story. Uh, this was after the drama tour, which featured vocalist Trevor Horn, who would replace John Anderson, and Jeff Downs, who would replace Rick Wakeman. After that tour... Trevor Horn decided to go on to become a big-name record producer, producing such bands as Frankie Goes to Hollywood, among many others, and Jeff Downs formed Asia with Steve Howe. Now, at this point, the only two remaining members of Yes are bassist Chris Squire and drummer Alan White, who would replace Bill Bruford in 1972. And who do you think that they decided to work with? They decided to bring back... Tony K, pretty much from wherever Tony K had crept off to in the intervening years, he had had a group called Badger. Well, actually, I wasn't going to say that. I was going to. I was backtracking even before that to 1981. Chris Squire and Alan White had actually met up with Jimmy Page, and they did this little. They were doing this little thing called the XYZ Band. Now you got to remember that Jimmy Page. This was early 1981 was fresh after the death of John Bonham and the breakup of Led Zeppelin. I remember hearing about this in high school, that they were going to form a band, like I said, they're going to form a band called the XYZ Band, and the and the name of the band was supposed to be X, Yes, Zeppelin. Um, supposedly, Robert Plant was going to be involved, but he decided not to be. They jammed on some stuff, but Jimmy wasn't in a good, a good place at that point, and it never really took root, although some of the Music from those sessions would later end up on albums by Jimmy Page's band, The Firm, and some later Yes records. So having failed at a, at a superstar 
super project, so to speak, um, they decided to maybe scale things back and start a brand new project, which would be called Cinema. They ended up uh, recruiting Trevor Rabin. At the same time, Tony K came in out of nowhere, I guess, to handle keyboards. Although on the album, Trevor Rabin has always said that he handled the majority of keyboards. You know, it's one of those who do you believe kind of things. But at this point, what we have is a quartet known as Cinema. That's right. The way I understood it, Chris Squire and Alan White became aware of Trevor Rabin. They got together with him and they jam- they went out for Chinese food and then they went back to someone's house and had a few drinks and jammed. And although Chris Squire said the jam session was kind of not very good, he said it felt right. They liked Trevor Rabin and he liked them. And they started working on material. It was this executive called Phil Carson from Atlantic suggested bringing in Tony Kay because he was a former member of Yes and he could give the lineup some credibility as it were. Yeah. You, you always get the feeling that, you know, even though Trevor Rabin thought he was joining a group called Cinema, the XS players and the record company definitely are, are thinking about this as the new lineup, the 80s lineup of Yes. And what complicates things even more, the producer of this album was Trevor Horn, who had appeared on the previous Yes album drama as their vocalist. So he was coming back to the group, but not as a singer, as the producer. So this, again, Yes is one of rock's greatest soap operas. It's just funny that this happens because Trevor Horn helped bring them into the 80s. He definitely did. This is one of the archetypal 80s transition records. There's a few that I would place in that category. Rush's uh, Signals album and albums by groups that were supposedly new wave that really sound more like classic rock groups but being updated to the 80s album uh, groups like the fix no i hear you and the thing is yes needed to be reinvented even rick wakeman has said that 90125 is one of the best albums they'd ever done and that if it hadn't happened you know yes may not have continued on past this or had continued on for several decades i think it's an album that even though it doesn't it doesn't point the way toward a future development of their sound, although it could have, it's definitely one of the, the, the greatest missed opportunities or uncapitalized on opportunities. It could have pointed them toward a completely different sound, but it definitely gave them name recognition that kept them in the public eye and, and has done for the past 40 years. I think most people see this as the last great Yes album. Well, not only that, it gave them their very first and only number one hit single in America. And you know what I'm talking about. Owner of a Lonely Heart. That's much better than a Owner of a Broken Heart. That is true. Let's backtrack to where, okay, we've got Chris Squire, Alan White, Trevor Rabin, and Tony Kay. They spent about nine months working on the album. And again, this executive, Phil Carson, at, at Atlantic Records or Atco Records said, he felt the songs needed a more commercial voice, and he suggested, why don't we bring in John to listen to some of the songs and see what he thinks? Which, again, you know, it's the past. It's the future merging into the past, merging into the present. John Anderson definitely does give it a recognizable yes 
sound and feel, even over material that is as far divorced from mid-70s yes as you could possibly be. Can't argue with that. When John Anderson decided to come on board, they realized we really can't call this cinema because it's you've essentially reformed a version of yes. Obviously, the, the new element being Trevor Rabin, who brought a much more harder edge guitar sound and 80s you know sensibility some of it even said that some of his guitar breaks almost border on heavy metal yeah it's it's definitely a far cry from the sort of like you know folk country jazz style that steve howitt had i mean steve howe always played those hollow bodied you know big gibson guitars very like you know Wes Montgomery, very jazz player-ish, you know, George Benson, that kind of thing. Trevor Rabin came in with those sleek-looking, you know, Stratocasters. Uh, remember the Stratocaster with the metallic, um, with the metallic top that, that, like, reflected? You know, it's very, very flashy. I don't remember it offhand, but you're, I'm sure you're right. Remember the video that they released... 9012 live oh yes that basically tells you everything you need to know about the difference between 70s and 80s yes they're more sleek they're more compact the stage setup is more you know superstar mtv 80s uh the thing you notice of course is their hairstyles and their colorful clothes and all this drama behind the scenes no pun intended has turned Tony Kaye's hair white. That's true. The first time I heard Owner of a Lonely Heart, I was in, it was my senior year in high school, and somebody was playing it on a radio, like a few feet away from me or in the hallway. And when I heard it, I thought, oh, it sounds like the police. But of course it was Yes, which was very interesting. The story of Owner of a Lonely Heart, that's a song that almost didn't end up on the album because... It was on a, t a demo tape that Trevor Rabin had given to Trevor Horn, the producer, and he hadn't intended to, you know, audition it for Yes or Cinema. But when Trevor Horn heard it, he said, "That's a hit." They also used some samples that were on one of uh, producer Malcolm McLaren's tapes. They found one of his tapes, one of his club tapes, and they used samples: the James Brown horns, all the different sound effects. Yeah, 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 and all that. That's interesting. That that would be one of the very first songs I've ever heard then that did incorporate sampling. Yes, and this is back when you couldn't just you know cue it up on a on a computer or you know have it or do it on the palm of your hand. This was actual tape, and they had to incorporate this. I'm sure by this point they had some digital some of the early versions of digital technology. Uh, speaking of which, let's talk about the album cover. Which is, again, you know, one of the first um, computer graphic, computer-generated graphics that have ever been seen on an album cover. It's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's a pie graph of some kind. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be. All I know is it was, I think it was plotted on a, a Macintosh computer. And obviously, the classic Yes logo that uh, Roger Dean invented is nowhere to be seen. This is a much starker Yes. I mean, it's the it's got a gray background. It's got the Yes logo and a white typeface. 
so they were definitely declaring a line in the sand between the old yes and the new yes. Yeah, it's definitely got sort of like that gray sweatshirt kind of tracksuit <laughs> kind of feel to it. Most definitely. And let's go through the tracks quickly. Well, the first single, the breakout single, the single that establishes 80s yes, Owner of a Lonely Heart, it's got a little bit of a Motown feel to it in a way. Um, a lot of people mistook it for, as you said, the police. I always thought it was Genesis. It sounds a lot like something. It, it it sounds a lot like a response to like Abacab era Genesis. Uh, no reply at all. Hmm, that's interesting. I guess there is a kind of an R and B element to it. And like I said, you've got Trevor Rabin and his metallic guitar. In fact, in the video they show. Uh, a saw grinding against metal, and that's cued into Trevor Raven's guitar solo, which is kind of cool. Speaking of speaking of the video and talk about you know changes in Yes members, this is a kind of blink and you'll miss it kind of thing. The video, of course, is is not is is like this concept thing where the band starts playing it just as a band, but then the song stops and it becomes this thing where you see a bird flying. And the Yes members are wearing suits, and there's this guy who appears to be tripping on acid or having a nervous breakdown. If you look closely, you'll see that Tony K is not in the video. I, I never noticed that. Apparently, after recording the album, Tony K left the band, and they had to replace him with another keyboard player, a keyboard player by the name of Eddie Jobson, who had a progressive pedigree. He'd played with the group's UK and... Jethro, he also played in an early 80s version of Jethro Tull. They recruited him, and he was going to do the tour. In fact, it, there are promo pictures of the band with Eddie Jobson in the lineup. But apparently, at the last second, Tony Kay decided to come back, or he was enticed back into the fold, and he ended up doing the 90125, 90125 tour and 90125 live album. That's interesting. I never knew that. Yep. That's cool. Yeah. But see what I mean about trying to keep track of the uh, the Yes lineup changes? I guess they were just trying to convince him to hold on. What a great song. It definitely, it's funny, this has a, it's got the progressive, it's got a bit of a progressive touch, the sort of new wave-ish keyboards, and yet has a bluesy sound to it. Alan White really plays some great drums on this. It's one of the, every song on this album has a hook. The longest song on it is at the end, Hearts, which is a, a, a very compact seven and a half minutes by Yes standards. Every song is, they're not single length songs per se, but they're very condensed and they're very, uh, what's the word, compact. They make their point, they establish, they expand on it a little bit, but they don't overdo it. There's not a song on the sound that overstays its bounds. It's it's an example of like supreme skill. They've shown off all of their all of their chops over previous albums. They've established that they have nothing to prove chop wise. So now they can get down to the business of playing songs. This is so true. If it can happen to them, it can happen to anyone. That's true. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. Right. It can happen wherever you happen to be. <laughs> this is a great, I love this song. And the opening 
I thought it was Trevor Rabin who played some an electronic sitar, but it, apparently they brought in a session musician whose name escapes me to play that sitar. And I love the song. It's it's such an optimistic song. It's you know it's a it's a it's an affirmation. It's yes. When they go into the guitar solo, somebody they have this recorded voice, and I, it sounds like he's saying "dama." I hope he's not. I, I, it probably isn't. It's probably just some foreign language, but. I hope it's definitely not referencing Jeffrey Dahmer because that would be that would put a major bummer on this album. Yeah, you you definitely want don't want to go there. It's um it's the most Beatles Beatles song on the album. It does have that kind of like Sgt. Pepper slash Yellow Submarine kind of vibe to it, and the uh, the chorus is a little bit Dr. Seuss, but it works. Wow, you, you you managed to pull a lot of different things out of this. I'm glad I'm glad we're doing the show together, Mark, because I wouldn't have I wouldn't have pulled that out. Well, it is it is a very Beatlesque sort of like vibe to that song. It always reminded me of, of something that the Beatles would have done around that era. But that's what happens when you go through changes. Another great song. I don't know how you would describe the time signature at the beginning of that song. As much as I favor Bill Bruford over Alan White as a drummer, Alan White is pretty amazing, especially when you listen to this song, because he's playing some stuff that's just really off kilter, and he's trying to keep up with Trevor Rabin and Tony Kay, and and I I, I don't know how how they came up with that, but that's a typical yes thing. They come up with time signatures and you know, I don't know if you'd call this the 211, but it's a great song. And it's, it's, the sentiment is great, especially if you feel like you are going through changes. And what's great about it is that Trevor Rabin sings the main verses, but then you have John Anderson coming in for some of the choruses and some of the pre-choruses. Yeah, it, it's emblematic of the whole situation they're going through because they are going through heavy changes. You know, you have the, the very, very progressive intro to the song. Which then moves into the body of the song itself, which again is very chorusy, very hooky. It's an extremely mature song that a bunch of seventeen-year-olds could not have pulled off. Right, and Trevor Rabin's vocals on this are very impassioned, very, very strong, and very, you know, you believe what he's singing. He, it doesn't sound like he. It's a contrived thing. He's he's really going through some changes, and yes, was too. This, in, in, a, in many ways, is sort of Yes's midlife album. They're not old, but they're certainly not, as I said, they're not wet behind the ears anymore. It's, it's definitely an album made by 35-year-olds. And we'll jump to side two and the song Cinema, which is an instrumental. Gee, I wonder where they got the name for that, Mark. I think that's probably one of the... Probably one of the first things they came up with, I would imagine, because it does have that kind of feel of being a movie theme, being a TV show theme, being a being a riff, basically. I believe it was derived from a much longer version, possibly 20 minutes long. They used this as the intro music to the 90125 tour, and on one of my playlists, I use this as the intro before I go into the other songs. It's it's a great piece of music. Again, Yes is kind of starting a new era, and they're and this music, this piece, this instrumental, really sets the tone right. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good um, interlude. It's interesting, you know, on previous Yes albums, especially the one that we just got through talking about, the Yes album, interludes were always placed in the middle of a side, whereas on this album it comes directly at the halfway point. Well, again, this is, you know, this didn't start out as Yes, and it became Yes, so this is a new a new version of Yes, a version of Yes that brought them into the 80s and made them competitive with a lot of the hard rock, pop, and new wave that was at, out at that time. Yeah, this, this definitely is their abacab. And while some people embraced the new sound, there were others who may have preferred to leave it it's a good song but alan white does not play on the song it's a strange song it's one of the weirdest things he ever did the uh, the video shows them upside down well if you had mtv back then which i did i believe there were something like 10 different versions of the video and each one had a slight variation uh from the from the original like the original i think it just showed them the five guys either upside down or standing up singing the song, and then one guy would rotate around or the group would go upside down. And if you had MTV, you know, and it was on, you were wondering which version you were going to end up seeing. Yeah, it was definitely one of the, the kookier things they've ever done. The song itself is not bad. I think it was released as a single, actually. Yeah, it was the second single from the album. I like it, but it's, it's definitely got some quirky harmonies. And... Again, you can't fault them for trying something new. I always thought that, you know, Trevor Rabin coming from South Africa, Leave It does kind of have that sort of like, you know, tribal kind of thing to it. You know, the the, the vocal arrangement. You know, I'll, I imagine all five of them are probably singing and probably Trevor Horn also. I wouldn't doubt it. Trevor, you know, Trevor Horn really... Is one of, Trevor Horn is one of those producers who really immerses himself in the project and puts his stamp on it. I think originally they wanted, they were wondering if Trevor Horn wanted to sing, but Trevor Horn was very much against it at this point, having done the drama album and tour. He just wanted to produce, so that's what he did, and he did it very well. He did. Uh, next we have our song, um, possibly the dark horse of the album. Yeah, it's definitely them venturing into sort of, you know, I don't know if ballad territory would be the right word, but there's some wonderful vocals on it, and it's, you know, music and magic. It's one of the songs that are, especially after Leave It, which is like one of the wackiest off-the-wall things they ever did, our song kind of gets things back into um, normalcy, so to speak. It's... uh, it's a decent enough sort of ballad-like track. Not really one of my favorites, but it's nice while it's on. They were probably singing that song when they were in the City of Love. Yeah, they were probably en route, the, uh, the hot streets of the City of Love. Is I hot streets, so you had to tie that into Chicago, huh? It's the city. What other city is there? I actually, from what I read, this was about New York, and Trevor Rabin had got, Trevor Rabin was new into the country, and he apparently, he had gone to New York, and the the cab driver took him to somewhere in Harlem, and yet somehow, you know, nothing bad happened to him, so that's why he called it City of Love. That I could be wrong. 
The interesting thing about this song is it's the only song on the album that is credited to Rabin and Anderson. Yeah, so it makes me wonder if, you know, if this was one of the ones they did that t- toward the end. Maybe Rabin was writing this at the end and Anderson collaborated with them. Although Anderson has, has said about this album and Big Generator, the one that follows us, that he really didn't feel a part of the process. He was just kind of, you know, slotted in. Trevor Rabin, from what I understand, was the real driving force behind this album in terms of the writing. It's, it's interesting that the stance is their only direct collaboration. And it makes you wonder if, like, you know, Raven had already prepared the song and Anderson heard it and was like, no, this this little bit here, this little bit here, it, it's not right for me. I need to make some changes. You wonder if that was the uh, the motivation for it or if, or if it was a genuine collaboration that happened near the end of the process. It would be interesting to know that. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if, like you said, it was John Anderson, because John Anderson had to retool some of this material as best he could to tailor to his style, to you know. But like I said, he had said, you know, he just felt like he was slotted in. You know how it goes with these with these guys. You know, this this started out as kind of Trevor Raven's project, and I think he felt it got hijacked into being yes. So I'm sure both of them have valid points. Yeah, it's it's it is a little bit of like pushing and pulling on each side of a blanket, more or less. But you know, when you have so many egos involved in a project, there is the potential for a lot of broken hearts. And this is an al- this is a song that ends the album, and it's nice, and it's do 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 do. Yeah, it's another song that's great when it's on. It's a song that, you know, has a nice little chorus to it. It reminds me a little bit of like an 80s version of like Time and a Word, the title track. It kind of has that same kind of tempo, that same kind of feel to it. Although it's a bit more 80s, obviously. They're synthesizers instead of strings. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this again then. I think, and interestingly enough, it's the only track on the album that's credited to the entire band. I imagine like the arrangement had a lot to do with that. It it it's is the uh, the most extended song on the album, and it does have an it it does have an, it has an interesting interlude in the middle, which is one of the 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 very few interludes that occur on this record. It ends the album on a on a fairly positive note. Like I said, this is an album that really brought, yes, it reinvented, yes, it brought them into the 80s, it made them competitive, but as we discussed earlier, it didn't necessarily pave the way for bigger and better things. Obviously, there was a major tour in support of this album that ran into 1985. I think it started at the end of 83 and went into 1985. Yes, was, you know, this was their, in America, it's their most commercially commercially successful album. I think it sold something like three million copies, which is you can't deny you can't deny that. No, this absolutely was their huge pop reinvention. It's very likely the biggest album they've ever had in America. And then it took them four years to produce a follow-up, and that album, while I I do like it, I do think it's got some great songs. It was kind of like 9012 light. Yeah, it, it's a little too much retreading of the same kind of ground. It's not a bad record, but it, it's very predictable. 
and it's kind of anticlimactic, you know. How many how many leftovers can you have from the same dinner? <laughs> it's kind of has that problem. Overall, I think. Uh, see, how does nine hundred one two five compare to the Yes album? I prefer the Yes album myself, but there's no denying that this album was very significant. Like I said, Rick Wakeman even said, if this album hadn't happened, they probably wouldn't have been. A, they may not have been a Yes going forward, or you know, into the '90s, or even today, really. I think uh, the Yes album is maybe like a bit more fresher, more like genuine artistic expression. 90125 is a little bit more, you know, calculated commercially in some ways. Although the, the compromise they came up with is very interesting and very compelling. The problem with the Yes album for me is I don't really care much for those two little interludes. I could kind of do without them. The problem with 90125 for me is that yeah, side two kind of peters out after cinema for me. I like side two well enough, but it's definitely not as strong as side one. Yeah, 90125 is definitely more of a front-loaded album, but I like the interludes on the Yes album. I think they they complement the bigger pieces. And, you know, like I've said in previous episodes, the best bands are the bands who did different types of music. So I can live with them. You know, like I said, even though someone might say like fragile is a better album in some ways it is, but I think the yes album, I like it and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. And I don't think I'd change 90125 either. Obviously, the interludes on the Yes album do give a sense of perspective. You know, they're, they're sort of like little alleyways in between two gigantic buildings on either side. Um, whereas 90125, it is, as you say, front-loaded with the hits and the most impressive pieces. Side 2 is kind of like more experimental in some ways, but also more conventional in some ways. The, the two experiments, you know, cinema and leave it. And then it kind of goes almost into ballad territory. Well, the 80s was the age where the ballad began to reign supreme. Uh, I don't know if you'd call it these any of these songs power ballads, but that was definitely the era where those where that was starting was being created or it was in the early, early stages of its evolution. Yeah, the Bonnie Tyler era, all those sorts of songs. Just out of curiosity, to, to wrap uh, before we wrap this up, how did you become aware of Yes? Uh, WMMR, Classic Rock Radio. Um, growing up as I did and becoming aware of a radio when I did, it was just before the 90125 era. Um, I do remember... I have a vague memory of classic rock radio in the early 80s, still concentrating very much on, you know, the the Starship Trooper, all good people, roundabout era of, of Yes. They were still playing those songs in regular rotation. So I definitely remember, I remember 90125 being brand new and hearing Owner of a Lonely Heart and thinking, wow, they turned into Genesis. I became aware of Yes in 1980, which was right around the time that drama came out, because my local rock station in Boston, uh, 94.5 WCOZ, was playing Tempest Fugit a lot. 
But the thing that really made me discover yes was I was taking guitar lessons at the time, and my guitar teacher, this guy named Russ, he suggested I listen to Yes, and I did. He suggested I get the Triple Live album Yes songs, but that was a bit pricey for me. That was a $12 Triple Live album in 1980, and I couldn't afford it. I did, I did get it eventually, I think, with some Christmas money, but I ended up getting Fragile as my first Yes album. And I will admit, at first, when I listened to it, I was like, hmm, I don't know about this, but after a few listens, I warmed to it. It was my first exposure to progressive rock, or at least consciously. I did get drama. I did get yes songs very early on. And boy, there was so much to, to get into and to catch up on. It took me years. But I love yes. They're one of my favorite bands. And I'm glad we had this discussion to talk about these two albums. I mean, like I said, we, we could do a side yes cast just, you know, album by album. But I felt that talking about these two albums would, you know, like I said, they're game changers. Well, they are definitely game changers. They signify the start of a new chapter in the group's history. Um, the Yes album, of course, even though it doesn't feature a Roger Dean cover or the Roger Dean logo, it music-wise, it definitely heralds that era. Whereas um, 90125 definitely heralds the you know, the Trevor Horn production era, the sleek covers, you know, the computer-generated covers. The MTV era. And, of course, the 9012 Live concert film with uh, somewhat pretentious computer animations um, added to the final product. I don't know if, have you seen that uh, 9012 Live? Uh, oh, yeah. that was It was played on MTV like 400 times. Yeah, that's right. They did play, they did play some of the live stuff. That's right. And, of course, that led to a, a live... EP, although I think it was like a 33-minute, called 9012 Live, The Solos, which came out a couple of years later. But I think that was just something to kind of put out there as a stopgap because they were going to start work on Big Generator. Well, it's interesting because what they really were were solos for the most part. There's only like two actual songs on it, Hold On and Changes, but the rest of it was literally solos. (laughs) Well, there's a very beautiful guitar piece by Trevor Rabin called Solly's Beard, and I had the pleasure of seeing him perform that live on the Union Tour in 1970, on the Union Tour in 1991. That's a tour I didn't see. But yeah, I always wondered why they released an album of solo excerpts when they could have released you know, a live album. It would have made more sense. Well, I think back then, live albums were kind of looked at as, you know, okay, you've just put out your first album as a new band, and now you're going to do a live album. Now, if if like, if like Yes was putting out an album every couple of years, you'd expect a live album every tour. I mean, that's basically all they've been putting out for the last few years are live albums. But I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it would have made more sense to have done a double live album or maybe even just a single live album with highlights. But anyhow, um, the album that ultimately did emerge was Big Generator, that we've already talked about. Overall, it it was a great beginning. It should have heralded more. It didn't, but what we got is pretty good. Oh, I'd say it's very good. I'd say it's very good, and I'm glad they put it out. I'm glad it happened. It's a new direction for the classic rock era, and it's also very much the end of the classic rock era. It's the bridge between, you know, the the analog-based music of the 70s 
entering the digital era, and the point from here is pretty much the point of no return because everything becomes digital, you know, in the 90s. Before the 2000s came along, analog became a, a, a retro thing. Yeah, so it, it's it's not only a crossroads for yes, it's a crossroads for rock music as we know it or knew it. I think that's awesome. And I think that's a great way to end this episode. I think that sums it up thusly. I think so. So anyhow, I've been Mark Konzorowski the entire time. And I've been Chris Karam most of the time, although sometimes I've had doubts about that. And on that note, we'll end this episode, or we'll leave it. We will see you next time on the Double K Super Show. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please rate a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media. Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show.